Lieutenant Gorman's Dogfight with a UFO, 1948 One of the early classics of UFO history involved Lieutenant George F. Gorman of the North Dakota Air National Guard, who said he had a 27-minute dogfight with a UFO in the skies above Fargo. Date. October 1, 1948 Location. Fargo, North Dakota Gorman, then manager of a Fargo construction company, told this story to Air Force investigators. On the night of October 1, 1948, he had been on a cross-country flight with his squadron. Upon return to Hector Airport in Fargo, he elected to log some night flying time, so he remained airborne after the other planes had landed. He had circled his F-51 over the lighted football stadium and around the city and was preparing to land about 9 p.m. The control tower cleared him to land, advising him about a Piper Cub in the vicinity, the only other plane, and he could see the light aircraft outlined plainly about 500 feet below him. What appeared to be the taillight of a plane passed him on the right, but the tower insisted they knew of no other planes in the area. Gorman informed the tower that he was going to investigate the other aircraft and pulled his F-51 up and out toward the moving light. He closed to within about 1,000 yards and took a good look at the object. It was about 6 to 8 inches in diameter, clear white, and completely round without fuzz at the edges, i.e., sharp and clear. It was blinking on and off. As I approached, however, the light suddenly became steady and pulled into a sharp left bank. I thought it was making a pass at the tower. I dived after it and brought my manifold pressure up to 60 inches but I couldn't catch up with the thing. It started gaining altitude and again made a left bank. I put my F-51 into a sharp turn and tried to cut the light off in its turn. By then we were at about 7,000 feet. Suddenly it made a sharp right turn and we headed straight at each other. Just when we were about to collide, I guess I got scared. I went into a dive and the light passed over my canopy at about 500 feet. Then, it made a left circle about 1,000 feet above, and I gave chase again. Gorman said he cut sharply toward the light, which was once more coming at him. When collision again seemed imminent, the object shot straight up into the air in a steep climb out, disappearing overhead. Gorman again attempted to pursue it but his plane went into a power stall at about 14,000 feet, and the object was not seen again. It was then 9.27 p.m. Gorman was so shaken by the encounter that he had difficulty handing his plane, although he was a veteran pilot and a flying instructor during World War II. He had noticed no sound, odor, or exhaust trail from the object during the dogfight, and no deviation on his instruments. At times during the chase, he had pushed the F-51 to full power, sometimes reaching 400 miles per hour. He described the object as round and somewhat flattened. In the airport control tower, traffic controllers Lloyd D. Jensen and H. E. Johnson also saw a strange light near the airfield. After passing to the east of the airport it seemed to take a northwest heading. The object seemed to be at about 2,000 feet and appeared to be traveling at quite an excessive speed compared to a Piper Cub that was east of the field at the time. No definite outline could be identified. Both objects, the UFO and the Piper Cub, were sighted at the same time. Jensen said that through binoculars he sighted, an object or a light traveling at a high rate of speed, apparently on a southwest heading. The F-51, Gorman's plane, was some distance behind and the object was traveling fast enough to increase the spacing between itself and the fighter. The object appeared to be only a round light, perfectly formed, with no fuzzy edges or rays leaving its body. The edges were clear-cut. No other shape was observed. The main identifying characteristic was the high rate of speed at which it was apparently traveling. The pilot of the Piper Cub, Drive, 
A.E. Cannon, and his passenger, Einon Nielsen, also witnessed the swiftly moving light while in radio communication with the tower. While circling the football field at NDAC at 1,600 feet, Fargo Tower advised us that there was an F 51 in the air and a few moments later asked us who the third plane might be, Cannon said. We had noticed the 51 and when we were over the north side of Hector Field going west, a light, seemingly on a plane, passed above and to the north, moving very swiftly toward the west. At first we thought it was the 51, but we then saw the light of the 51 higher and move over the field. We landed on runway 3, taxied to the administration building, and went up to the tower and listened to the calls from the 51, which seemed to be trying to overtake the plane or lighted object, which then went southwest and over the city. The object was moving very swiftly, much faster than the 51. We tried to get a better view with a pair of binoculars, but couldn't follow it well enough. In a statement to Major D.C. Jones, commander of the 17th Fighter Squadron at Hector Airport, Gorman said he was convinced that there was thought behind the maneuvers. I am also convinced that the object was governed by the laws of inertia because its acceleration was rapid but not immediate, and although it was able to turn fairly tight at considerable speed, it still followed a natural curve. The object could outturn and outspeed the F 51, he said, and was able to attain a much steeper climb and to maintain a constant rate of climb far in excess of the F 51. When I attempted to turn with the object, I blacked out temporarily due to excessive speed, Gorman stated. I am in fairly good physical condition and I do not believe there are many, if any, pilots who could withstand the turn effected by the light and remain conscious. George F. Gorman retired from the Air Force in 1969 with the rank of Lieutenant Colonel and was then living in Texas. Next story The Foo Fighters Every student of the history of UFOs knows of the phenomenon seen during World War II and known as Foo Fighters. Kraut fireballs or a variety of other names. Basically, they were balls of light which followed and hovered around backquote planes of all nationalities both in daylight and after dark. Research into this subject has been undertaken by myself on behalf of the Fund for UFO Research. Foo Fighter research shows the genesis of the modern UFO age, and during my research, I came across the old chestnut of the dreaded government cover ups. For many ufologists, World War II is the time when the cover up really began, and there are intimations in many writers' books, Keel, Fawcett, Good, for example, that both the US and UK governments were involved in separate studies of the Foo Fighter phenomenon. These subjects are several articles long in themselves, and we won't go into them here, but for the record, so far, there is no documentary evidence of a cover up of World War II UFO sightings, or even much interest on any government's part. No. What we are trying to get to here are the facts surrounding one particular case of a World War II Foo Fighter sighting, the cover up implications, and how ufology has dealt with it. So, as the walls melt and voices become fuzzy, let me take you back, back, back. Okay, it's October 14, 1943, and you're a bomb ame in a B 17 going in amongst the flak for the final run over the ball bearing factories at Schweinfurt in Germany. A trouser filling experience which us young folk can't even begin to imagine, but for this particular bomber wave, they had more than flack to contend with. According to Martin Caden, who wrote Black Thursday, 1960, which deals exclusively with the Schweinfurt raid, during the bomb run of several groups, starting at about the time the fortresses approached the initial point, there occurred one of the most baffling incidents of World War II, and an enigma that to this day defies all explanation. As the bombers of the 384th Group swung into the final bomb run after passing the initial point, the fighter attacks fell off. This point is vital, 
and pilots were queried extensively, as were other crew members, as to the position at that time of the German fighter planes. Every man interrogated was firm in his statement that, at the time, there were no enemy aircraft above. At this moment, the pilots and top turret gunners, as well as several crewmen in the plexiglass noses of the bombers, reported a cluster of disks in the path of the 384 TIS formation and closing with the bombers. The startled exclamations focused attention on the phenomenon and the crews talked back and forth, discussing and confirming the astonishing sight before them. The disks in the cluster were agreed upon as being silver colored, about one inch thick and three inches in diameter. They were easily seen by the B 17 crewmen, gliding down slowly in a very uniform cluster. And then the backquote impossible happened. B 17 number 026 closed rapidly with a number of disks. The pilot attempted to evade an imminent collision with the objects, but was unsuccessful in his maneuver. He reported at the intelligence debriefing that his right wing went directly through a cluster with absolutely no effect on engines or plane surface. The intelligence officers pressed their questioning, and the pilot stated further that one of the disks was heard to strike the tail assembly of his B 17, but that neither he nor any member of the crew heard or witnessed an explosion. He further explained that about 20 feet from the disks, the pilot sighted a mass of black debris of varying sizes of clusters of 3 by 4 feet. The secret report added, backquote also observed two other A, C flying through silver disks with no apparent damage. Observed disks and debris two other times but could not determine where it came from. No further information on this baffling incident has been uncovered, with the exception that such disks were observed by pilots and crew on missions prior to and after mission 115 of October 14, 1943. Caden's account of the events of the 14th of October 43 has since been cited, quoted from, and faithfully reproduced with not the slightest hint of analysis in over 20 UFO books. Tim Good's above top secret uses the case to back up an as yet fictional World War II study of UFOs by one General Massey, and it is used both to support the UFOs were around in World War II school of thought but more so to hint at the birth of official cover ups. Why? Well, because in Caden's book, the account is footnoted, one memorandum of October 24, 1943, from Major E.R.T. Holmes, FLO, 1st Bombardment Division, Reference Flow, IBW, Rep. 126, to MI 15, War Office, Whitehall, London, SW, copy to Colonel E.W. Thompson, A2, Pinetree, leaving us in no doubt that they knew all about this UFO sighting and had full documentation. At least two copies, not to mention any subsequent memoranda. But did they really? In fact, did the event ever really happen at all? I'm not so sure it did. When I first discovered the account, I began to see what could be found out about it. It's obviously well referenced and so should be easy to check out. A letter to the MOD at their Air Historical Branch 5 came to nothing, suggesting that either of the documents may be held at the Public Records Office at Kew, London. A professional researcher was dispatched to try to find the document. She searched all relevant Air Force records available. Some are still bound by various backquote rules with embargoes on viewing of up to 100 years, but could find nothing, despite the help of staff there and noting that the reference flow, etc., does not correspond with any references at the record office. In the USA, Dennis Stacey, MUFON journal editor, Had taken an interest in the case and followed up several leads, aided by the Freedom of Information Act. Firstly, the AF Historical Research Center at Maxwell AFB searched their 8th AF files but could come across no documentary record of the event, 
Interestingly enough I tried the same source and whilst they gave me squadron histories of the 415th Night Fighter Squadron and their documented Foo Fighter sightings, they could provide nothing on the Schweinfurt raid. Odd if the Schweinfurt events were real. The National Archives, Washington, searched their files but drew a blank. A letter written to French researcher J.M. Bighorn from the National Archives stated, A search in records of the United States Strategic Bombing Survey, USSBS, European War, Target Damage File, 11A, 2606, Schweinfurt, failed to disclose any documentation or information regarding little flying discs by B-17 pilots. All this presents us with a quandary. If the archives are quite free about some Foo Fighter info why, if it exists at all, should they be that bothered about concealing the Schweinfurt material? So far three independent researchers over the past 10 years have had the same answer. None of the flight records for that day record the event in Caden's book. As I have seen other pilots' logs which mention unusual UFO-type sightings during missions it would be inconceivable for at least a few aircrew on that raid to have mentioned it even in passing especially as in this case it was obviously something of an item at debriefing. Letters in numerous aircrew magazines, UK and US, requesting info on the raid were placed and despite many replies no one knew anything. Aviation writers Martin Middlebrook and Chaz Boyer who have written many highly detailed books about the air war, and have interviewed thousands of aircrew, wrote to say they had never heard of the incident, despite having had Foo Fighters mentioned to them in other contexts. If the account wasn't a hoax in the government archives, all of them, were either lying or hiding material pertaining to the event the only way of proving it seemed to be getting a fresh first-hand report of the incident. Dennis Stacy contacted the 384th Bombing Group Survivors Association and with no account of the UFO sighting forthcoming from them, even stranger, perhaps survivors associations are in on the cover-up too was put onto General Theodore Ross Milton who led the raid that day and went in first with the 91st Group Formation. He wrote, I don't recall seeing black discs or hearing about any strange phenomena from any of my group, was his reply to the question Stacy posed him. Are we really to believe that the guy who led the raid didn't hear anything about the phenomenon? Or is he part of the cover-up too? Martin Caden, originator of the rumor also presents problems. His book Black Thursday was first published in 1960 and yet quotes an alleged secret report. How did he get hold of it then and why has it not been seen since? As for Caden himself, several people have tried to get in touch with him without success. Both myself and MUFON journal editor Dennis Stacy have tried to track him down via his publishers and a UFO magazine he has written for, but to no avail. He last appeared in the dodgy US magazine UFO Universe where he was featured on the front page as having chased bogeys at 20,000 feet, an astonishing spectacle no doubt. But whilst the article gave details of UFOs he'd seen post-World War II, government film of UFOs, cover-ups, and you name it, along with mucho promotion for his many books, including UFO-based novels, the Schweinfurt raid was never mentioned. Funny that, really. So unless and until Caden himself comes out of the woodwork with the original document to which he refers, or until someone who was on the raid can verify the sighting, or until other evidence about the event comes out, the discs mentioned by Martin Caden seem to be nothing but a rumor, a rumor which like so many others has distorted UFO literature for many years. On a more hopeful note, if the sightings did take place the event still has no real place in ufology, especially in the way it has been used. Remember from the original account the objects were only 1 inch by 3 inches which is stretching the small alien interpretation somewhat. 
In an air war context, I would suggest that anything which is small and metallic and in clusters is some kind of window or radar deflecting device or some other war related artifact. Caden's account also mentions that pilots saw a mass of black debris of varying sizes in conjunction with the disks, suggesting that they came from some explosive shell casing or damaged airplane. Note also that at least one plane was alleged to have flown through clusters of the disks with absolutely no effect, suggesting that, like radar deflecting strips and their ilk, there was very little weight or mass to them. All this is pure speculation, however. Finally, whilst this case is often included in backquote foo fighter roundups, it really has no business there, being atypical of the general backquote foo fighter morphology and behavior. You may think I've been a bit pedantic here with this case, but it is very significant and the available facts need to be made known. If people are going to talk about sightings, then let's at least be certain they happened. If backquote cover ups are to be invoked, let's see some non anecdotal evidence. As with the other Foo Fighter cover up case from Germany, Project Uranus, a hoax generated by French ufologist Henry Dorant to see how far it would go, it went all over the place. The Caden account has been repeated ad nauseum by UFO writers, each trying to use the material for their own ends without looking into the source material. Crap researchers, the lot of backquote M. If the document Caden alludes to turns up, fair enough. But until then, the case which launched the World War II cover up idea seems to be on very shaky ground indeed.